Well, good morning again, and thank you for praying for me as I prepare to speak on this passage here in Mark that Michael read. It's a very practical account, and it was especially encouraging to me as I studied it and really convicting to me as well. Like I often do, I want to begin this morning by asking a question, and I'm sure if I were to open up the floor for responses, we would spend the next hour or more discussing all the various answers you might have. However, in the essence of time, I just want you to think, you to think in your own mind what your immediate response would be given the question. So the question is, what is truth? Some of you may think that answer is very easy. Others may think it quite hard. What I found interesting was the different ways that truth was actually defined by various sources. The dictionary defined it rather simply. The real facts about something. Which my response to that is, well, who knows the real facts? It gets even more interesting. Modern psychology portrays it like this. And I'll read this slowly. According to the coherence theory of truth... A thing is more likely to be true if it fits comfortably into a large and coherent system of beliefs. It remains that the system could be a giant fiction, entirely detached from reality, but this becomes increasingly unlikely as we investigate, curate, and add to its components, assuming, and it is quite an assumption, that we are operating in good faith with truth rather than a self-preservation as our aim. Thus conceived, truth is not a property, but an attitude, a way of being in the world. That definition is so confusing. When I took psychology in college, I never did understand what the teacher wanted. And uh, this, this adds icing to the cake here. Let's look at the Bible dictionary. Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Because the definition of truth flows from God, it is theological. A well-known pastor had these comments about truth. Ask anyone today, what is truth? And you're sure to start an interesting conversation. Try it on a university campus and you're likely to receive laughter, scorn, and derision. The concept of truth has clearly fallen on hard times and the consequences of rejecting it are ravaging human society. Yet praise God that he is the author, source, determiner, governor, ultimate standard, and final judge of all truth. Unquote. If you look at the Bible... Surely one of the most profound and eternally significant questions concerning truth in the scriptures was posed by an unbeliever. And that was Pilate, the man who handed Jesus over to be crucified, who turned to Christ in his final hour and asked, What is truth? As found in John 18.38. It was a rhetorical question, a cynical response to what Christ had just revealed. I have come into the world to bear witness or to testify to the truth. And 2,000 years later, the whole world breathes Pilate's skepticism. Some say truth is a power play with the sole purpose of controlling the ignorant masses. To others, truth is subjective, the individual world of preferences and opinions. So again, 
the question, what is truth? What is truth to you? Hopefully you do believe and agree that God is the author, the source, determiner, governor, ultimate standard, and final judge of all truth. As this is confirmed when Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was making it clear that all truth must ultimately be defined, be defined in terms of God and his eternal glory. So, how do we know this truth? We know the truth because it's contained in the Word of God, as found in John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. And the biblical truth that we find in God's Word, it never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And while society may indeed change, the truth in God's Word never does. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Today's account is all about truth. As Christ is posed with two questions to answer. Now most questions are good and certainly an indispensable part of the learning process in life. However, sometimes there is what I call a wise guy who will offer up a difficult and often pointless question to encourage a fruitless debate and discredit another person. Such it was with the Pharisees and the Herodians as they tried to discredit Christ and his teachings with two penetrating questions. So I call today's message Christ answers with truth. So let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you that Christ demonstrated this truth. We pray today that you would help us to be attentive to the truth that we're looking at this morning, and I pray that you would really work in our hearts to see the importance of it in our life. So thank you for what you taught me. Help me to be able to explain it in a way that others can understand. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. My wife asked me this morning, did you break this up into two sections? I said, no, four. Four. Four sections. So the first one is verses 13 through 15a. <clears throat> so follow along as I read. And they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and the Rhodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? I titled this The Question Concerning Giving, specifically the giving of taxes. As we uh, begin here in verse 13, we learn that the religious sect of chief priests, scribes, and elders has sent certain Pharisees and Herodians to Christ to catch him in his words, and in essence to trap him. <coughs> Much like our modern political system of Republicans and Democrats, power in the Sanhedrin government was shared by two sharply opposing parties. The aristocratic or upper class Sadducees and the mostly popular Pharisees. Normally these two groups were totally against each other, 
But now they share a common threat to their power, so they band together as partners to eliminate Jesus. Public opinion kept them from laying hold of Christ, so now they work together in an effort to turn the tide of this public support against him. And they do that by posing a question in verse 14. Master, teacher, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, or you have no favorites. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute or pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the question is reiterated again in verse 15b. Shall we give or pay or shall we not give? Now before we get to the question itself, I want you to notice all the, the praise or what I would call the flattery these men share aloud leading up to the question. Master, we know thou art true. Master, we know thou art fair and have no favorites. Master, we know thou art not swayed by men. Master, thou teachest the way of God in truth. And all leading up to the pointed question, Master, shall we give or shall we not give? If you really stop and think about it, how often do we also use this same tactic of flowering words known as flattery leading up to a pointed and self-serving question? I see this often in the workplace when an employee wants something from his boss. Boss, you're the greatest. And I'm so glad I work for you versus Mr. Smith down the hall. Well, you're always so understanding and fair. And oh, by the way, would it be okay if I leave early today? Flattery. What is flattery? The definition is excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interest. Examples I thought of would be like a commercial or advertising that praises mom for all their hard work and caring for their small children and then advertises a specific brand of diaper to buy. Or that used car salesman who emphasizes over and over to a prospective customer, I can tell by looking at you that you are a hard worker so you deserve to reward yourself today, all in an attempt to get him or her to purchase a car. Again, in the workplace, flattering your boss just before pitching a new idea that would give you a promotion. Telling a friend that she is so smart and so great at math just before asking her to help you with your homework. Flattering a college teacher on his interesting lecture just before asking him if you can have just one extra day on that assignment. Praising your mom for it's a wonderful dinner. It was so good, mom. Do you care if I don't do the dishes tonight? It happens. It happens often. In the Old Testament... Flattery is built on the Hebrew word for being smooth and slippery. And sadly, it's associated with a forbidden woman. Proverbs 5, 3, For the lips of a strange woman drop as honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. Proverbs seven twenty one: With her much fair speech she caused him to yield. With the, the flattering of her lips, she forced him. 
Also, the use of flattery can bring destruction and ruin to a person as addressed in Proverbs 26:28. A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. Or Proverbs 29:5, A man that flattereth his neighbor spreadeth a net for his feet. Then in the New Testament, we find in Jude that flattery is mingled with sins like murmuring and complaining. These are murmurers, this is Jude 16, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouths speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. And I like the ESV, it put it this way, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. So definitely flattery is, is sinful. And yet I ask myself, then how can we celebrate or praise something about a person without spreading a net for their feet or working their ruin? I think the key difference between praise and flattery is flattery is sin because it's calculated. It is given with the view to obtain some advantage as we see in Jude. In essence, the distinction between flattery and praise is the benefactor. Flattery has a, a selfish motivation. The flatterer hopes to gain approval or advantage over the one being flattered. Praise, however, is a sincere acknowledgement and admiration spoken to a person with no selfish intention. So I encourage you to think about your words. Don't be a flatterer. Well, back to our text and the question. Shall we give or shall we not give? With this question, they seem to have Christ trapped. If he agreed the tax should be paid, then he would be out of favor with the people. If Christ agreed the tax should not be paid, he would be openly declaring himself an enemy of Rome and be treated like a revolutionary. So if you can try to picture the, the smug, self-satisfied smiles... We've got you. And his response? Well, follow along. Verse 15b to 17. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny or denarius, that I may see it. And they brought it, and he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they saith unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered, said, answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. I call this section the answer concerning authority. Now, a little history. Since the year 6 AD, the Jews were forced to pay taxes directly into the emperor's treasury. Some Jewish patriots refused to pay the tax, simply because they did not want to recognize Roman rule as legitimate. On the other hand, most of the people paid it grudgingly, but everyone had to pay it, even if you disliked it. It wasn't the money, but it was the principle of paying the Roman oppressor. Now, fast forward to 2022. No doubt we are living in a similar situation. Some people refuse to pay income tax. Most may pay it but don't like it. 
And for sure no one likes paying taxes if the money is spent foolishly. With the, the debt ceiling rapidly approaching 30 trillion, I have no idea where our nation is headed, but you can be confident taxes will be going up. And while we may have federal income tax and state income tax and sales tax and use tax and excise tax and property tax and inheritance tax and social security tax and Medicare tax, just to name a few, back during this time there were only three taxes imposed by the Romans. The first was a ground tax, which was 10% of all grain and 20% of all wine and, fruit, wine and fruit. Now get this, the second was the income tax, which amounted to 1% of a man's income. That's pretty good. I could live with that. And then the third was a poll tax, which was paid by men ages 12 through 65 and women 14 through 65. This amounted to one denarius a year, or about a day's wages for a laborer. So how does Christ respond to this question? Well, he ignored the flattery and simply stated, Why tempt or test me? Bring me a penny, a denarius, that I may see it. And once they brought it to him, he asked this question in verse 16, Whose is this image and superscription or inscription? Now on the denarius he was holding, which was a Roman coin, was the face of Caesar, Tiberius, the reigning Roman emperor. And around the face was the word Caesar and the abbreviation A-V-C-V-S-T-V-S, which together meant Tiberius Caesar, the son of the divine Augustus. And on the back of the coin was the title Pontifex Maximus, declaring that Caesar was the high priest of the Roman Empire. By asking the question, whose image is on the coin, Christ is telling his listeners, you are to recognize Caesar, Caesar's civil authority when you use his coins, and therefore you are obligated to pay the taxes he asked for. And then he confirms that by going on and saying in verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Likewise, for us today, that same truth of paying taxes holds true. For the Apostle Paul said in Romans 13, 6 and 7, For this cause pay ye tribute, or pay ye taxes also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute or tax to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. However, let's not miss Christ's final point here concerning authority. For he goes on in that same sentence and says, And render to God the things that are God's. What, what is he saying? He is saying that while Caesar may have authority over the land, the ultimate authority is God. And your allegiance must be to him. I like what one commentator said, The coin belonged to Caesar because his image was stamped on it. But we should give our, ourselves to God because his image is stamped on us. In essence, give the coin to Caesar, but give your life to God. In the response, they marveled. Why? Because he answered with truth, or as one author said, they were amazed at his ability to confound their most ingenious strategies. God was glorified 
Caesar was satisfied. The people were edified. And his critics were stupefied. So, let's try to apply this a little bit. I, I, uh, I asked my wife, don't we have a silver dollar? No, we don't have a silver dollar. So, a quarter's going to have to do. There's a quarter. Who does this quarter belong to? Me? It was in my pocket. Uh, George Washington's picture is on here, so maybe him. Or it's a government. The government's the one that minted it, so must belong to the government. I think you all know that ultimately everything belongs to the Lord. But what's interesting is I thought about this coin or a dollar bill or a $20 bill or a $100 bill as compared to Caesar's coin. Our currency here in the U.S. surprisingly still have the words on it, in God we trust. That's a, that's a perfect illustration of rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's or being under the authority of the government and paying taxes. And yet the realization that it isn't this coin that we serve. It is God that we must trust and love and follow with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, and our whole strength. This is rendering to God the things that are God's. And until our death or until Christ returns, we may need money, but we must, we must never serve it. And we are to obey governor and authorities, but we, we surely don't follow them when their laws conflict with God's truth, His holy word. For it is His truth that we must always, always adhere to. Verses 18-23 Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they ask him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die, and leave his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise. And the seven had her, and left no seed. Last of all, the, the woman died. Verse 23, In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. I called this third section the question concerning the resurrection. Again, background. At the time of Christ, the Jews only had vague notions of an afterlife or thoughts of a resurrection following death. So for the most part, they referred to all experiences beyond death as Sheol, an existence as mysterious as the ocean depths. On the other hand, the Pharisees had developed a doctrine of rewards and punishments in the hereafter, while their political rivals, the Sadducees, believed the soul perished with the body. According to their beliefs, God punished the wicked and rewarded the righteous in this life only, and then sent them all to the grave with no resurrection. So interesting enough, as we begin here in verse 18, it's the Sadducees who approach Jesus with another trapping question which for the sake of argument assumes that an afterlife exists. And the question in verse 23 is somewhat ridiculous, but on one they hoped would demonstrate the absurdity of Christ's teaching on the kingdom of God as eternal. So leading up to the question are several statements, and I'll just paraphrase them here. 
probably can't see that anyway. Verse 19, if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children such that his brother should take his wife and raise offspring or children up. Verse 20, and if there are seven brothers and the first one takes the wife and dies leaving no children. Verse 21, and the second takes her and dies and likewise he leaves no children and the third likewise. And it so happens that this takes place seven times and there were no children from any marriage and now the woman herself also dies. Question, verse 23, in the resurrection when they all shall rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven of these brothers were her husband. According to Jewish custom found in Deuteronomy 25, if a man died and his widow had been left without children, an eligible relative, usually a brother, of the dead husband was to marry her father's children and then rear them up as heirs of the dead man's estate. So in this far-fetched question, the scenario plays out seven times such that now in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Likely the Sadducees are posing this to Christ as a means to say that any resurrection indeed is absurd. For if we all come back to life, then how do you decide whose wife she will really be? Now, let's talk about the resurrection. Not a far-fetched question, but a reality check. Do you believe in the resurrection? Particularly, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ himself? Surprisingly, a recent 2020 study indicated that 66% or two-thirds of all Americans believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ as stated in the Bible. I was really surprised. Yet only half of these people, 33%, attend church at all. So while they may outwardly say they believe, they really don't understand or grasp the significance of what that means. For the Christian, the resurrection is a key. The resurrection of Christ. And I just want to Go to 1 Corinthians 15. So if you would turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to read a few verses. Because this is critical to this question that Christ is being asked. I'll start 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start in verse 12 and read to verse 19. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead... How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are, also, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all of men most miserable. I think it is a fact that the authenticity of our entire Christian faith rests on the fact of Christ's resurrection from the dead. For if, if there was no resurrection, this passage speaks to it, Jesus is a liar. Our preaching 
is vain. Our faith in Jesus is also vain because we are believing in something that never happened. We are still living in our own sins and that is a huge problem. And there is no life after death since there is no real resurrection from the dead. We are all most miserable if that's the case. But that's not the case. That's the golden thing about God's word because this is the truth as we said at the beginning this is what we have to go with this is what we have to believe God's word teaches the truth of the scriptures as verified by witnesses that Christ absolutely rose from the grave and that is our foundation to know eternal life awaits for all those who put their trust in Christ do you believe in the resurrection have you put your faith and trust in Christ. If not, it would be just like this morning. The testimonies of Alan and Jarvis's sister. What a contrast. You either have hope in Christ or you don't have any hope at all. Our last section, verses 24 through 27. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do you not therefore err? Because you know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush... God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. I call this last section the answer concerning the truth. It appears the Sadducees thought they finally had Christ where they wanted him, for it seemed like the perfect question but Christ turned the question upside down on them, revealing in verse 24 that they should have already known the answer before they asked. And why didn't they? Because of the ignorance in their hearts that Christ points out in two specific ways. First, ignorance, and they knew not the scriptures. And secondly, ignorance, they knew not the power of God. Simply stated in these verses, Christ is telling them, if God is the God of the living and he has redeemed you, then don't be ignorant, for he has the power such that you can never be robbed of eternal life. He can raise even a dead person and give them life. And then he goes on to answer their question in verse 25 by saying that in the resurrected state in heaven, Christians neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are as the angels. So does that mean Barbara and I won't be married in heaven? That's exactly what it means. Christ is saying while believers get married here on earth as a fulfillment of God's reflection of Jesus Christ and the church, in heaven that will all change. For Christians will be like angels, non-sexual, immortal, and completely devoted to God. Our new bodies will be perfect and therefore no death. So no need for marriage and procreation and continuance of the race. So that begs the question, with my new body in heaven, will I even recognize my sweet wife? I like how one commentator explained this. 
Don't worry about recognizing your sweet wife. I put sweet in there. Don't worry about recognizing your wife. God will not withhold any blessing he has for us in heaven. Even this one, if this is his sovereign plan. Then Christ continues with the truth in verses 26 and 27 by revealing how ignorant they are of the scriptures. For even Moses himself in his writings assumed a resurrection and that God spoke to him in Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Notice God used the present tense, not past tense, indicating that he is now and forever will be the God of these Hebrew patriarchs. For he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And then lastly, Christ summed up his assessment of the Sadducee theology. Well, we're in verse 27. He says, Therefore, you do greatly err, meaning you are greatly mistaken, you are greatly misled, you are greatly deceived, which was a stinging judgment of those men who supposedly led Israel in all spiritual matters. One commentator said that the Sadducees posed as men of superior intelligence and knowledge and yet on this very point, they were ignorant of the scriptures. My Bible says it this way in the footnotes. They knew the words of the Old Testament, but they lacked insight into its spiritual implications, for they were ignorant of the truth. So as, as we wrap up today, how do we apply this? My question to all of you is, do you, do you know the truth of the scriptures? Or could you be ignorant as well? How do we know if we are ignorant or misinterpreting the scriptures? Well, here are a few thoughts towards that end as I looked at truth or error. Misinterpretation or the truth. One, do you have a lack of reverence and respect for the source of the scriptures to even doubting God himself at times? Or, do you truly know God and have a growing personal relationship with him and believe wholeheartedly that the scriptures are the infallible, inspired word of God? Two, do you have only a familiarity with God's word and are lacking a depth of real understanding? Or, do you strive to understand a passage of scripture by studying it in light of all of God's revelation? Three, do you use the Bible to support your own human ideas and opinions? Or do you submit your understanding of Scripture to God's authority and from that standpoint obey what you hear? The, the contrast of truth and error reminds me of the danger of what I call peephole driving. So let's imagine it's been a frigid, snowy night and we venture out in the morning to find our car encased in ice. So what do we do? We, we start the car, turn on the heater, get out, get our trusty scraper, and we start scraping. We chip out just a little hole in the window. We're late for an appointment, we're shivering, we're miserably cold, so I move to the back of the car and do the same thing. Small, tiny ear, a little hole in the front, a little hole in the back. Now I don't have to tell you what most all of us do next. We jump in the car and start driving, even though we can hardly see out. 
We try to stay up with traffic by leaning up on the windshield to see. Peering out our peepholes and hoping we don't have an accident. It's called peephole driving. It's also called an invitation for disaster. Sadly, in this world we live in, we also have people that live their lives with people living. Many, many people, people who even call themselves Christians, are people who really, really don't know God's truth at all. They may be somewhat familiar with the Bible, but never look at it. Only have a superficial understanding of what it says, which certainly leads to error and a superficial living. My encouragement to you today is to know the truth. And the only way you will know the truth is to know the scriptures. And the only way you'll know the scriptures is to spend time in the scriptures. Don't be ignorant of God's word by neglecting it each day. Instead, jumping into life, looking through only a small peephole, for if you do, you'll be heading into all kinds of error and ultimately disaster. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and the way he answered these questions with truth. Lord, forgive us, forgive me when I put other things in front of reading and studying your word. Lord, help us to realize that we are to render to God the things that are God's, and that's our life. You give us everything we have, and yet we're so busy that we don't even take the time to really know you better by studying your word and knowing the truth. So make us a people, Lord, who would realize that disaster does lie ahead if we don't know you and your word. Thank you again in Christ's name. Amen.